Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant, and I want to welcome you to episode 22. It's been a little bit of a break between the last one. Uh, a few things happening. Largely the film is in its final stages of post-production. We're doing the polishing of colouring and grading and sound and music and all that sort of stuff and it is very close and I'm waiting and waiting before I can break the news that it's going to be available or at least there's going to be a future date. So that's on the cards. There's been a lot of things happening as well. been watching Olympics of course and then there was that French series in Australia, which was probably more dramatic than I wanted it to be, but it certainly uh, seemed to engage everyone uh, with Game 3 going down to the wire. And here we are with Bledisloe 1 for 2021 uh, about to commence this week, and it's just been announced today that there are going to be two matches at the dreaded Cauldron of Eden Park back-to-back. However... We have to love and embrace the challenge. So today's episode is, is quite fitting because given it is uh, round one of Bledisloe, we're going to actually hear from a former All Black. I sort of wanted to jump into this episode because there'd been a few things happening in the news. The one thing that made me think about it was the return of Quade Cooper to the Wallaby camp. The prodigal son returns. And despite the circumstances that have led to him returning to the team, one of the key themes that seems to surround this story is how much of an older and experienced and perhaps even mature player Quaid is now at the ripe old age of 33, goodness me. But he's going to be an invaluable mentor in that squad and a supporter for a, a younger playmaker like Noel Olaseo. So whether or not we actually get to see Quaid on the paddock, it's made me think about how much of a massive boost that is to have a, an older, more experienced player looking over your shoulder, giving you that one-on-one guidance. And it's taken me back to some of the people I've been talking to along this journey, and the first of which was Murray Mexted. Now, Murray will be known to many as the the all-black legend who played uh, in the the, the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, He's then since had a short career as a commentator where he was known for his very colourful style. But in 2002... He was involved in setting up an academy, uh, the International uh, Rugby Academy of New Zealand, known as IRANS. And it's a paid training clinic in which promising young players and emerging coaches can take part. Uh, It's an intensive sort of training camp, and they have access to former international players and coaches. Well, in 2019, Rugby Australia endorsed the creation of IRA which is the International Rugby Academy of Australia. Uh, Murray was in Sydney to help set it up and uh, was there to uh, run its first training course. In fact, one of the people who participated in it was, was John Eels, who I've spoken to earlier, and he had something to say about IRA. So the International Rugby Academy Australia, IRA, which is a, an offshoot of IRANS in New Zealand, created by Murray Mexted, is a... It's a wonderful independent opportunity for people to learn rugby and to be exposed to different coaches and former players in quite a different environment. 
and it's an independent group uh, that, that, that's come on and set about just creating another another opportunity for players and, and importantly coaches to to develop their their skill sets and you know, I think you'd say as well their, their skill sets and their passion for the game and and just so they can get better at it and then create the opportunities that they might go on and it becomes a, a serious uh, career for them. So, as I said, it's fitting that we're hearing from Murray Mexted in the week that Australia's due to play the All Blacks. I sat down with him uh, in between a few sessions during the IRA training camp. This was back in January 2020. And of course, because it was pre-COVID uh, shutting down the world, I was actually able to sit down face to face. It's fair to say Murray has aged very well. And he does look like the sort of person who would happily throw on the boots if the situation required it. Murray, thanks for joining us here today. Pleasure, pleasure. Where were you on the 10th of November, 1979? <laughs> Was that my first test? Yeah. It wasn't actually my first test. We played against Argentina earlier in the year, but that didn't uh, count, you know. Oh. In those days, the IRB only had about seven countries. Um, but anyway, it was a big day. It was played at a good field. Good name, I thought. Quite appropriate. Murrayfield, Scotland. You played 34 caps in New Zealand in a row. Is that a record for an All Black? Uh, I don't think it is now. Um, I think Sean Fitzpatrick might have broken that. I'm not sure. It was pretty good at that stage. Um, and of course, you know, they didn't count most matches. Um, I think I played over 70 matches in all. But a lot of them were against countries that weren't, that are now members of world rugby. Why do you think rugby is, is so, I mean, it's effectively a, almost a religion in New Zealand? Yeah, I don't know. I think it suits our mentality. You know, it's, um, we're pioneering stock who, um, who, who had a treaty with local iwi, um, the Māori population, indigenous population in New Zealand. Uh, who loved rugby, and I think it was a, a collective thing that suited us all, really. And uh, it became the sort of the every little town would have you know, a rugby club or two or three or more, and it would be the meeting house, you know, instead of perhaps going to the square like in European days, early days. Uh, the meeting place was actually the rugby club, and I think it sort of held most communities together. Um, good for our country, I think, and. Uh, and now rugby, of course, is uh, the all-black all brand is such a big thing that uh, um, it's good for the country publicly overseas. Why is no other sport such as, say, rugby league come close to rivaling union in New Zealand? I don't know. I mean, I guess... Um, yeah, I don't know how I can answer that question. Why, is rug, why has rugby got no real rival? Um, I think it... I think rugby captures the imagination um, more than league and more than soccer uh, for our population. Um, there's a huge number of people playing um, soccer these days at a young age. League hasn't really grown. But I think there's more fluidity in rugby. Uh, I think more is possible as far as um, you know, competitive areas, as contact areas, as a, as a contest for possession in rugby, which is different in rugby league completely. And I think uh, New Zealanders like the contest. Um, and then they like the creativity that's possible 
um, outside that contact. Um, so, you know, if you have 25 phases, it's not unusual uh, in the game of rugby before, before the whistle blows if you've got a good referee, you know. It's not stop-start, in other words. It's continuity when you've got two good teams playing a good brand. So during your career, you had a, a, a very healthy 76.4% win rate. But <laughs> against Australia, it was 63.6%. Yeah. What, what's your general impression of the Wallaby teams you oh. played against? Australia was tough during my period because they were better at catching and passing. It's quite an interesting thing, actually. When I set up IRANs, um, one of the first things we discovered when we had players from overseas coming through is that just about every Australian we got could catch the ball with soft fingers and pass it across their bodies, point almost to where they're passing to. And I put that down to a very, very good brand of rugby being played in the backs, not quite so much in the forwards, in the 80s in that period that I played. And you know, there's some gifted rugby players and gifted ball distributors when you talk about the Michael Liners and the, and the Ellers and the Andrew Slacks. There were just so many, you just rattle them off. And then all young Australians seem to be able to catch and pass. But that's sort of changed a bit recently. We've, uh, I think the uh, New Zealand rugby player actually catches and passes best, better than most countries now. Historically, Australia is, when they've beaten New Zealand, it's been by smaller margins. But when New Zealand have beaten Australia, it's been by larger margins. Do you think there's any reason for that? Um, well, I, I think that's built from the skill set that I thought in the 80s was outstanding in Australia. Fast and hard tracks, and um, if, if an Australian team got on top of you, it was a hell of a hard to peg them back. Um, we had a forward-orientated game, so we were nowhere near as expansive. It was all about controlling the ball and position, mm-hmm. the contest uh, for position. Um, I think New Zealand teams in those days were, um, were naive um, and less expressive than Australian teams, so naturally, when uh, an Australian team was running hard and fast, you know, they were a hell of a hard to stop. We wanted to keep the ball close and Australian teams wanted to move it wide. So you were playing a much better brand of rugby than uh, the New Zealand was at the time. What do you think's the general perspective that New Zealanders have of the Wallabies today? Yeah, well, I didn't like Australians too much uh, um, when I started, and I don't even know why. Um, but during my career, I was lucky enough to play in uh, the celebration of 100 years of rugby, I think it was, Northern Hemisphere versus Southern Hemisphere. And my scrum half was Nick Farr-Jones, and uh, we roomed together. And after the first day, I thought, oh, this guy's actually all right. And after the second day, I thought, actually, we're kind of similar in many respects. And after the third day, I knew we'd be mates for, for the rest of our days, and I think that probably broke the ice for me. Um, so I don't think there's a... There's a hell of a difference, actually, but there's going to be healthy rivalry forever, uh, which I think is good. So, look, you know, we've been quite honest when we're looking at, you know, talking to people about rugby in this country. At the moment, we are in a bit of a slump, a, a big slump, really. Um, last two decades, obviously, the Wallabies have, you know, really struggled on the main stage. Um, we haven't won a Bledslow in, in 18 years. I guess I'm curious to know where New Zealanders, what their perspective is of... The Wallabies looking... Of the Wallabies right now, my perspective of the Wallabies right now is that uh, they're underdone. Um, and I think the, um, the Dave Rennie factor um, will open your game up considerably. He's an outstanding coach. He's really very good at bringing 
um, players together and mm. creating a team environment. And of course, Dave was a second 5'8 when he played and he knew all about creating space. He wasn't the guy that was slipping through the gap. Mm. He was the guy that was putting people through the gap. And I think you'll love his brand of rugby. Mm. He likes to, to use the field and as all his teams do. Yeah. So I think um, I, I'm looking forward to the next few years of Australian rugby because I've, I don't think that everybody has this view in New Zealand, but I want Australia to be really strong. I want the Wallabies to be fantastic because New Zealand and, and Australia have to compete with these Northern Hemisphere countries. And let's face it, they've got all the players and they've got all the money and they're going to get us in the end. But in, at this stage, if we can have really healthy competition and play at really high level, and this is not only um, at international level, but at super rugby level, then of course we can keep up there with the best of them for sure. And it's an interesting point you make, because you've got you to probably see it from a, an Aussie fan's perspective. It's a bit of an ego blow at the moment. We've got a New Zealander who are, is our national coach, CEO, and then something like this has been started by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, what yeah. do you sort of say to the sort of, I guess, the general Australian rugby fans who are looking at this going, you know, why haven't we been able to have Aussies at the top of these uh, very powerful, you know, positions in Australian rugby? Yeah, what's a, what's a Kiwi boy doing over here with a few Kiwis introducing a, an, an academy that's, that's worked in New Zealand and worked in South Africa and other mm-hmm. places as well? Yes, um, yes, little brother, big brother, there's a bit of that syndrome going on, isn't it? But uh, I, I'm not like that, though, really. I, I see, um, you know, the, Dave Rennie is the coach of your, your national team. If he's the best man for the job, I don't care whether he's a man or a woman or he's black or he's white or he's uh, whatever, whether he's a Kiwi or an Australian, um, as long as the best guy's got the job. Um, I think with uh, IRANS, um, what we did in New Zealand, I sort of felt that we had so few numbers of players and I thought that we had messages to pass on from former players, former great players as they were leaving the game to pass on their message to the next coming through. Um, and that was what I was trying to do with, uh, with IRANS, was to, to set up a way of transferring intellectual property, basically, within the game. And it's worked really well. Um, and we've sort of, we have to make the best of everything we've got because we haven't got a lot of players. We haven't got a lot of people. Um, and we've had a great deal of success. So we've built coaches. We've had an emphasis on coaching just as much as, as players. And I know that you, you get a lot more uh, publicity and profile out of, out of players around the world as they make all black teams, particularly our graduates. But um, this last Rugby World Cup that's just finished, uh, we had 20 graduate or staff coaches working as coaches in the Rugby World Cup. Now that's a fantastic achievement. So we've got one saying at at IRANS, it's uh, good coaches develop good teams and good teams create great players. So I think you've got to build your coaches. You can't just, you know, you can't just find a, a coach hanging from a tree and get him to coach your team. He's got to build his game. And the big thing about coaching is to, you know, that we're all different and we all have a different way of looking at it. And we all have different skills and coaches have to create their own sort of template on how they're going to go about coaching. And then they've got to work on the steps all the way through. And this takes time and you can't become a successful head coach of the Wallabies uh, if you've just picked up coaching a couple of years ago. You've actually got to do the yards. Dave Rennie did 10 years at IRANS, 10 years of bringing teams together, you know, and he's good at what he does. So um, I think creating an environment to build coaches 
is paramount for the success of any sport anywhere. Um, and I don't know if you've done that in, in Australia. Uh, I don't know much about what you've done with coach development here, but I know that we're getting a lot of Australian coaches coming to New Zealand to do our courses, uh, which, which is a message, isn't it? Um, and I guess that's one of the reasons why we, we're over here. I guess that's the question I have as Australian, is why has it taken so long for Australia to look at something like an academy, um, given New Zealand set this up 18 years ago? Yeah, uh, yes, we've been running for nearly 20 years actually, but 18 years of courses. Um, it's been a long haul, uh, but it's been good and it's been satisfying, um, and it's worked. The most important thing is it's worked. We weren't that good at it at the beginning, but we've got better and better, and I think we're pretty good now. Yeah, I was talking to John Eels about uh, that actually, and he said, yeah, he said, why reinvent, no, it was Nick Farr Jones, why reinvent the bicycle? Um, you know, if you've got a model, you know, maybe we should be re replicating that model, even if it is from those, those guys in that small country off to the east. Um, how does the sort of academy directly work with, say, I guess, you know, Rugby Australia or the top level to sort of produce that, that top talent? Yeah, well, IRANS was an accident in many respects because all I wanted to do was transfer knowledge. Mm. But in the end, it became more than that. And it, in the end, it told me that you know, the, the traditional way of doing it around the rugby world was to have long 10-month uh, or 12-month academy courses. And people would be indoctrinated through these courses and they'd become part of this academy and almost a special species, you know, that shouldn't mm. be touched. But... Rugby's not like that. Rugby on the footy field, it's, it's a jungle out there. You're not, you're not in, a, in a sort of a treasured little environment. So our courses are all about identifying player and coach attributes, identifying the role that they have to form, what, what, in fact, what role, what position is best for the player, what position is best for the coach for that matter, whether he's a specialist coach or a, a, a team coach, um, and actually identifying the areas that they need to build and grow showing them how to get there and the standards they have to reach and then letting them go back into their environment uh, and, and do what, what you have to do well uh, to make it in rugby. Obviously in, in, in Australia we have two other big football codes that are really competitors for talent. Do you think there is enough talent in Australian rugby union to try and, for instance, get parity back with the All Blacks at a Wallaby level? Yeah, Australia's full of talent, full of sporting talent. I mean, you just have to look at the record over the years of Australian sports people, fantastic athletes, and you've got the conditions for it, you know, so you're going to continue to, to grow um, potential players. I just think they have to be groomed better in rugby, that's mm. all. And yeah, competition um, is, is rife, isn't it? I mean, I think um, 20 years ago or so, there were probably about 100,000 league players 100,000 AFL players and 100,000 union players. And I think those odds have changed dramatically in the last mm. 10 years. So I think rugby's got some catch-up to do. And, uh, but I think they've got some big advantages. There's plenty of opportunity to catch up because rugby's an Olympic sport. It's a truly global sport. It's now a professional sport. You can go anywhere in the world and earn money as a career playing rugby or coaching rugby. And I see... Uh, not only New Zealand coaches all over the world, I see Australian coaches and players all over the world. No, I think there's, uh, you can catch, you can, you can close that gap 
very quickly because of the opportunities rugby provides. One thing that's constantly every year you look at in this country is the um, talk about grabbing good players from league and putting them into union. Do you think that's a strategy with sort of you know more more cons than pros? Well, it's not my strategy to um, pinch players from league and pinch players from other codes. My strategy is to grow players and grow coaches, to build them, to identify young guys with talent and give them the tools to become great players and great coaches. Does does Ira does it help players and coaches with managing the pressures they're going to presumably face when they become future professionals? Yeah, I think when you when you embark on a coaching career, you don't realise what it involves, don't realise the different dimensions. It's not just about being good at working out what positions that player best at. What have I got in this environment? What's my game plan going to be? Where, how can I use the talents I've got? There's a lot more to it. Man management's a huge part of it, you know. And it's man management not only of players but of fellow coaches because, you know, every successful coach realises he's got strengths and weaknesses and he needs to find other guys to support him in those areas where he's weak. So I think that plan is really, really important. Um, but managing, you know, emotional situations and political situations, these are all things that coaches don't anticipate before they get involved in it. But it can be very rewarding, um, you know, trials and tribulations of a coach, you know. But, um, you know, it's, it is an emotional uh, voyage. But, you know, when you, when you break through and you're successful, it's uh, hugely satisfying, hugely satisfying. How important do you think uh, are the Pacific Islands to rugby in both Australia and New Zealand? I think um, Pacific Island players are naturally uh, made for rugby, aren't they? Um, Physically, they just seem to suit the game. And uh, in Australia and New Zealand, there's big numbers now um, of um, PI athletes. Um, I say athletes because I know there's a lot playing rugby league as well. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's great. It's a resource, you know. Mm. Particularly for us in New Zealand, we only have 4 million people. And uh, you know, the, more, the more we have, the better that are groomed the right way. Um, and I think it creates opportunities too for the, the island groups um, you know, to develop their people and develop their culture even further. And those, those people that do move to Australia or move to New Zealand and live in those countries and have children, you know, they may go back and, and, uh, and benefit the place they came from originally. Um, you know, I think it's got to be good. I think rugby, rugby brings people together. Um, you know, that, that old expression, no I and team. The team factor is a fantastic thing because, you know, you, we talk about values and standards often in the game of rugby. Um, but if you don't have team standards and team values as a group, you're never going to be successful. And I think most athletes, most sports people want to be successful. So you've got to adhere to that team thing. You can be an individual, but you've got to get into that team thing. And that builds better people. And as the saying goes, better people make better rugby players. Lastly, um, Australia obviously is looking for answers to turn around their, you know, their record from the last couple of decades. What do you think are sort of the core things Australian rugby needs to be focusing on? Uh, Australian rugby um, has so much more potential than you're realising at the moment. I think, um, you know, one of the one of the problems I view as an outsider um, is there seems to be. There seems to be different groups and different factions all over the place. Within the school system, it's shocking. 
you know, you've got little special groups of GPS schools and combined schools, etc. There's this rivalry between states, which I think is healthy, but it should only be rivalry, you know. And there's one ex one expression that I use quite often: you've actually got to give to get. And I think that if people want to grow a sport uh, and and they want to work together to do it, you know, you've got to give to those people around you, and you'll you'll get far more in return. Ira has continued to function during COVID and it appears to still be scheduled for more workshops as and when restrictions allow. However, Ira is not the only wallaby school, as I'm calling them, that's been floating around. Since starting this podcast, I was made aware of another similar style of academy that's been in existence for a few years now. It's called the C2K Academy and it's based up in Queensland and it's spearheaded by a former Queensland Red scrum half called Brad Free and managed by a guy called Scott Oakhill who has a long history in sports administration and coaching in Australia and around the world. Scott and Brad, as you'll hear, uh, have worked together for a long time and have been really trying to achieve something special with their academy. I spoke to them a few weeks ago and we had a discussion about C2K, its purpose and what their ambitions are for it. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Scott, do you want to perhaps just kick us off and I guess tell me a little bit about your background in rugby? Uh, yeah, sure. Look, uh, like Brad, uh, I grew up in Brisbane, uh, went to a, a rugby school, played both codes uh, as a kid, but kept going with rugby when I finished school at the GPS Old Boys Club in Brisbane. Uh, I was an average club player and... Uh, got into coaching fairly early and uh, that, that led to me going overseas for 10 years and coaching in uh, the US, Ireland for the majority of the time and a little bit of time in France as well. Uh, Brad and I found ourselves in Dublin at the same time in, uh, well, we can say it now, the turn of the century, 99, uh, going into 2000. And... Um, uh, kept in touch ever since. We, we both returned to Australia uh, at about the same time in the, the, the mid-2000s. Uh, and uh, around uh, 2014 to lead into how our uh, academy or our program took flight, uh, around 2014, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, uh, Garrick Morgan, who... Uh, played a lot with Brad. In particular, I went to school with Garrick, but he played a lot with Brad uh, for Queensland and South. Uh, was overseeing the junior rep program on the Gold Coast and asked Brad to help out with the halfbacks just to help fine-tune their positional skills there, uh, their passing, their box kicking, and just some general uh, positional sense uh, around how halfbacks should play the game. So... Brad did that. He he saw uh, an opportunity to do that in Brisbane with the uh, schoolboy halfbacks and uh, off his own steam started doing that. And when that had sort of taken hold, he and I spoke to a few other people and saw an opportunity there to support Queensland and Australian rugby by opening it up to all positions providing position-specific skills from uh, former Reds and Wallabies players. Um, we 
expanded it slowly but surely, uh, starting with from memory, uh, back through fullbacks and front rowers, and then eventually built it up to to covering every position. Yeah, and and Brad, you obviously had a. I mean, you know, your your career uh, with the Reds uh, was obviously a you know a you know high point. Had any point during your career had you sort of thought about coaching, or was that something that you had um, sort of just found your way into doing through this academy? Not really, no. To be honest with you, I wasn't really interested in coaching. Um, my career, my footy career was, you know, in terms you mentioned Reds and that very, um, uh, what would you say, I was always just a, a squad member in these teams. Like with the Reds, I was probably in the Queensland Red squad for probably seven years. Uh, I only played seven games for Queensland. Um, I was the second or third string number nine um, for Queensland behind Peter Slattery and, and Brett Johnston. Um, and, um, but I was lucky enough to be a part of the squad and to have all those, to meet all those people. I, it was very good. Uh, and then I went to and played at um, Saracens mm. in 1997. I went and played, had a couple of seasons at Saracens when the game went professional after the first year of Super Rugby. Um, and then I ended up, like Scott said, in Ireland. And I finished up with Ulster uh, a couple of years uh, before I left to go to America. And when I went to America to study chiropractic after I finished, I ended up running the program there by default, coaching. So that's how I actually stumbled into any form of coaching. Um, and uh, we ran Life University, which is... Uh, probably one of the best universities in the US and is now uh, intertwined with rugby ATL and the MLR and the head coach there and a lot of people involved in that were players when I was there coaching. Um, so that's how I got into coaching. I stumbled across it and um, I particularly didn't like a lot of the admin stuff of it. I liked the football part of it, but not the admin stuff. So when Garrick and... Uh, so after eight years break, 2006 to basically 2014, Garrick just kept on pestering me about helping out. <laughs> and so we helped start helping out a few kids. And as Scott said, that's how the story goes. And then um, to add on to that, the program just, uh, we started getting a lot of kids that, um, they were the top end kids and um, started getting very good. And, and mm. a lot of them now have moved on to greener pastures and are doing quite well. Um, and then uh, we ran into a few people, Scott and Ian King and uh, a few other guys, and it was, it was just an overwhelming sense of a few factors. Everybody wanted to get back together and sort of meet up all the past players. Uh, there was another overwhelming factor. The game was the skills of the kids were in decline uh, and in need, um, and the games changed where the skills the skill sets now, you hear coaches and talk on the internet and on TV, oh, all players, I just want to play my role, learn my role. And so with that becomes a whole lot of position-specific skills required. So we basically formulated a program and not through, and, and each of us to our own, we were so many people in different positions. And I say they're all experts in their positions. They, they, they would have done numerous uh, video sessions uh, looking at, other players looking at their own skill sets, looking at team skills, trying to negate other players' skill sets, 
um, and they are experts in what skills other people have, emulating their skills, um, doing work to counter those skills. Um, you know, so, so with that became a program where all these guys were able to give back. They didn't have to be full-on coaches and, and uh, go through, you know, uh, uh, training three nights a week, a game on Saturday. We do nine sessions a year and it's very simple mm. and easy and they love it. So that's essentially uh, how that's morphed uh, over the last sort of seven years. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I look at the, co- the the list of coaches for the the C two K Academy, and it, you know, it's a who's who of uh, of Australian rugby, and the, you know the access you have to former Wallabies, former Wallaby captains, and you know, it's I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, all of these guys, obviously, you know, were were quite keen on passing on their knowledge. Is that sort of part of the motivation? Do you think of a lot of the senior players? Absolutely. Yeah, look, look Brad, Brad's story that he told there is uh, similar or identical to all the coaches that have, have been involved in the program over the last few years in that they they felt that they could contribute to the next generation uh, but didn't have the time uh, or the, you know, the motivation to get into coaching full-time or even part-time. So this this became for a lot of them a great opportunity to to give back on the you know nine or ten times a year that we mm. conduct sessions and so some of them had done no coaching at all some like brad had done a little bit and of course there are some who were quite experienced coaches the likes of pat howard and phil mooney but the ones that had done very little or no coaching as soon as they hit the field what they'd learned over the years from the, the Bob Templetons, the Bob Dwyers, Rod McQueen, John Connolly, etc., seemed to just flow out of them, yeah. and they they very readily picked up what they needed to do. Uh, it provides great benefit to the kids, and then they also bring they also bring that rugby IQ into the the program as well, where they give give these kids little tips about the positions that you can't find in in textbooks. They they recall a time in their career that they experienced similar scenarios and they're passing that on. So, mm. you know, for example, when George Smith is talking about the breakdown, any number of blooded lows or uh, super rugby finals come back to him where he was in certain situations and that that now gets passed through to the, the next generation. Uh, we, we sort of felt that, you know, there was great opportunity for that, uh, that flow of IP or, as I said, rugby IQ to be passed mm. on as well as those technical skills that obviously these guys know in abundance as well. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting you mentioned that because I've interviewed Rod McQueen previously, and he he talks about one of the, uh, and he he describes it as something that is a, is an unfortunate circumstance in that a lot of the good rugby IQ in this country wasn't sort of held on formally when players and would leave, and that you know a coach or you know a, a a new staff would come in and it would be a completely new set of ways of doing things, and I think the idea that you know, we have scores and scores of Wallabies, classic Wallabies, not even Wallabies, the professional players at all these levels. Mm. They've all got so much knowledge just sitting there. It just seems like if it was put into one thing, and obviously you guys have done that in, in Queensland, um, I guess sort of I'm, I'm curious about, you know, Queensland always seems to be a recurring theme that Queensland seems to be always innovating and doing things from going back to, like you said, Bob Templeton days. What is it about Queensland in that there always seems to be really strong um, grassroots-driven projects and ideas that that come through and then flow up to the, you know, the the, the top level? 
Yeah, look, look, I, I'll, I'll answer quickly, and uh, Brad might have something to add as well. And I, I can't speak for uh, the other rugby states in Australia, but in Queensland, what we grew up with was always a great sense of community. I think, I think the geography of Queensland leads to that. Rugby is the further out from Brisbane that you go. Rugby is a really big part of the community. It's an opportunity for uh, social touch points as well as sporting interaction as well. So people then come up with ways to uh, continue to do that in different ways of getting together and playing rugby in this case and uh, and advancing the game. Uh, mm. Queensland, of course, is also a really strong sporting state. So, you know, the, the weather and a number of other factors allow for that. But, but I, I think... That combination of the, you know, the tyranny of distance where, you know, I was talking to someone on Sunday at our most recent session, talking about going from Toowoomba to Gundawindi for a junior match in the morning that probably lasted about 45, 50 minutes and they drove five hours to do that yeah. round trip. So and that's the norm in uh, uh, regional Queensland. So you, you then, an extension of that is you want to make you want to make those sort of trips worthwhile, so you come up with innovative ways to uh, bring people together to play or mm. train or talk about rugby. And I think I think that that's part of it as well. But uh, Freeper, you might want to add to that. Yeah, Brad, what, what's your thoughts? Oh, I would probably just concur with what Scott said. Perhaps the only the other thing is is we just I think genuinely we have a past group of players when they perhaps reach a certain age just really want to give back, and I think. Uh, I've often said to um, a few other players, um, you know, all that information stored in your head is just no good to nobody unless mm. it gets out because they know so much. They can sit there and watch games. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about all of them pretty much. Um, and you have to share that knowledge and, and, and let that to that next generation um, because there's a need and because there's a, there's a you know, the, the, the youth of today um, have so many other things that will divide their time or or want their time, and that's not necessarily rugby. And, and the application of training methods to, to, to build physical skills and also the coaching, um, mm. you know, one could argue that the coaching or uh, stuff today in, in a whole range of sports perhaps uh, may miss the fundamental things. Not many people like doing the fundamentals. Yep. Uh, they're boring and monotonous at times and tedious. Um, so uh, I just think we have a, a, a really a good bunch of guys in Queensland and um, and they all just want to give back and and uh, they're excited about doing it. They're passionate about it because they, they've got something that's really oh, valuable. They've had they've been had that their whole life. You know, you look mm. at, uh, you mentioned, you um, some of the names, but, you know, without mentioning too many of the names, you know, Chris Latham, you know, he's played 78 tests for the Wallabies. I mean, every test of that, every minute of that, you know, I don't know how many Super Rugby games he's played. Peter Slattery, uh, he's another guy that played over 100 games for Queensland, sat on the bench to Nick Farr-Jones for probably 60 tests. Um, the amount of experience he's got watching Nick Farr-Jones, watching test matches up close, um, you know, watching other players, particularly in those days on the bench, because you probably truly did watch the game in those days mm. when you're on the bench. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I, I just think everybody's just so well endowed with knowledge 
and uh, and they're passionate about giving it back and unleashing it and yeah. uh, and being purposeful, I guess. Yeah, and, and look, you know, this this course or these 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 workshops or I guess trainings, they're all free, of course, which you know is yeah. is, is quite gobsmacking, really. Uh, presumably, and you, and you guys obviously have a very uh, you know pretty pretty strict selection criteria by which kids have to be coming forward. You know, do you just get a massive um, surge of, of of people applying to be part of this? Yeah, we do, uh, and it's um, uh, it's against that criteria you spoke of, where you need to uh, be an A player at a GPS or ALC school in uh, Southeast Queensland, or a junior representative player uh, either in the schools or the club system. Uh, and that's throughout Queensland. So r- roughly speaking, we, we feel we capture the top 20% mm. of teenage players in the game. And we, we made a fundamental decision at the start that we, we couldn't be all things to everyone. So we, we thought that uh, it made sense to match elite former players and coaches with elite teenage players. Uh, the other fundamental you touched on as well was that it, it had to be free, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. But primarily to provide as universal uh, access to the program as possible so that cost wasn't a barrier to a young player from wherever in Queensland taking part in our program. Uh, Secondly, we wanted the the player coaches, the ex-players and coaches to be in it for the right reasons. Mm. And uh, we have worked with 60, 70 coaches over the the years, Probably uh, one of them has asked about uh, money. Uh, so they, they all get it. They get why we do it and they do it for the right reasons they, and they give up their own time. The, the other thing is that there's been only a couple of players that we've asked who haven't been able to uh, come down at least once or twice and, and help out hmm. where they can. And those that couldn't just simply had uh, a lot going on at the time and practically couldn't do it. So... The willingness has been uh, unbelievable. And then, and then that's extended to all parts of rugby in Queensland, starting with uh, the Queensland Rugby Union, uh, you know, and then several key staff that work within there, the likes of Paul Carrozza, Sam Cordingly, their CEO, Dave Hannum, in particular. And then, of course, the Reds, led by Brad Thorne, have been really supportive, particularly in the last couple of years. And some of the, the current squad, uh, when they're available, come down and help out at the clinics, as do Brad and Sam, uh, Jim Mackay, uh, et cetera, as well. So the game in Queensland has really gotten around this. But to, to get back to, you know, how we set up the program, we want to make sure that it was accessible as it could be for all these players, subject to the criteria, uh, that everyone who participated in the program uh, did it on a voluntary basis. And, you know, as a result, we get we get great support from a combination of mums and dads uh, from Rugby Australia and the Queen Rugby Union to help run the program. Uh, mm. And then some, uh, you know, corporate sponsorship. But it it's real sort of um, hand-to-mouth stuff as well. Whatever we receive or we kindly receive uh, just goes straight back into running the program, uh, making the experiences... Uh, worthwhile as it can be for uh, the kids that take part. That's that's at the forefront of of everything that we do. Yeah, 
do do you have any sort of I mean you know support support or endorsement from say Rugby Australia or, or the, I guess the classic Wallabies who would be a I guess a similar um, organisation that would you know be part of your your, your ethos? Well, yeah, yeah, we we do we do we get great support from Rugby Australia and QRU mm. uh, in in practical terms uh, and then. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of other different ways <clears throat> as well. The, the classic Wallabies, we, we, we keep in touch with them. Uh, and, and then likewise, Vintage Reds in Queensland is a similar organisation and, and, and we are in constant contact with them about how we can work together. What I say about the, the classics is that they work on a, a slightly broader scale where they, they're focused on uh, spreading the word, growing the game on a participation basis which is really necessary as well. So what we found pretty early in discussions with them is that we were working in one part of the game and they were working in the other and we were complementing each other. Uh, it was almost hand in glove. So we, we continued along those paths and they, they do what they do and we don't do what we do. But there's constant dialogue. And then, and then of course, there's tremendous overlap with the, the guys who take part in Classic Wallabies yeah. programs and take part in, in ours. We just... Mm. We're delivering to a different part of the market for want of a, a better expression. But, you know, to go back to your question about support, Rugby Australia have been really supportive from from day one and that relationship has built over a number of years and we, we consider them to be partners of the program mm. uh, now. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, uh, an organisation called IRA started and, and I actually interviewed Murray Mexted um, mm. some time ago about that. Uh, it seems to be doing something a bit similar. It is not a free service, um, but it, 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 it seems to be doing, a, I guess, a, a, a similar thing of bringing back old players and, and, and passing on, on knowledge. Um, do, do you sort of see, I mean, could C2K expand? Could it be something you think you could roll out in other states and sort of try and have similar programs? Or do you think it's sort of it works because it's very focused in the region um, in Queensland, in which it started. Well, uh, I've got a two-part two answer to that. Yeah. Uh, and Brad, Brad will probably add sure. to it as well. But firstly, um, yes, it can be replicated at any state. We, we've had talks with people in New South Wales and ACT in particular, the, the other two, you know, major development areas in Australia about doing it. New South Wales have, have trialled it and they're still working on uh, a similar sort of program through, uh, you know, the New South Wales Rugby Union and Waratahs mm. set up. Uh, and likewise in the ACT, there's a couple of guys uh, uh, like David Grimmond, who are an ex-Brumby, who are uh, looking at, you know, something similar down there. So we, we've always been very open. With that, uh, we're not protective of our IP mm. at all, provided that they stick to the fundamentals of the program that we were talking about earlier. Um with regards to IRA, you're right that they do similar uh, or look to do similar things that we do as well. Uh, from their early days, which is about 12, 18 months ago, we've been in touch with David Mortimer and a couple of other of the key guys there uh, to make sure that when I say work together, that we're, we're talking to each other about what we do. And one of the main things is that we look to make sure our dates don't clash or anything like that. But we understand that they're trying to do something similar uh, to us and we're, we're sort of staying in our own lanes, but mm. trying to trying to collaborate as much as we can 
uh, with them. Iran's has been really successful in New Zealand for, for many years now under Murray, uh, Mexican and, and others. And uh, it, it was always a matter of time before that model was replicated in Australia. Uh, and, and again, some of the guys that work in our program work in that one as well. So um, what, what, what's encouraging, I'll probably finish by saying this, is that there's a range of programs now that will sort, suit different people for different reasons, but are all working towards effectively the same goal. We've, we've spoken about the classic Wallabies and the Vintage Reds in Queensland. Uh, there's similar organisations that exist in New South Wales and uh, ACT as well that start to look at these sorts of things. Um, and then IRA and other uh, similar academies too. We, we, we talk to all of them mm. as well. And, you know, again, there's an overlap with most of the programs because there's only so many uh, ex-players and coaches to, to go around. Um, but in summary, I think there's a place for everyone in this space and uh, mm. we just occupy a part of it. Uh, Brad, what do you got to say? Well, just to answer the question about the other parts of the country, Scott's right. We've had some preliminary um, discussions over the last couple of years with those various organisations without repeating what Scott said. He was pretty bang on bang on there. Um, we've just, you know, some. it seems quite difficult to get it off the ground in those places. And I guess to get back to us, I think that we've, um, we just have so much momentum moving forward with people mm -hmm. joining in. We've just, you know, we've got, uh, just had a few other past players, uh, Mitch Chapman, Daniel Heen and Wilgenia, um, just make themselves available as well. Um, so uh, when they're when they're available, of course. Um, so we, we we just have the momentum. I think of those places we get off the ground and mm. uh, and provide. The key is 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 to provide something for the kids. The kids need um, to see some sort, and the parents need to see some sort of um, pathway. They see they need to see programs. They want to see this. Um, and for the development of their kids. I think as a game in general, in that space, in that, that young teenage space, or sorry, the whole teenage space, pretty much school-age teenagers, we need to... This is the prime learning area for kids fundamentally, the skills, mm. neurologically speaking. And we need to really, uh, really, uh, in any sport, but as a game of rugby, really, we need to grasp that and give the kids and build the cohort levels strong. Um, and I, deep down in me, I make no bones about it. We want to see a better Wallaby side. We want to see these kids go and play for Queensland. We, we want to, or any other super rugby side. Uh, we're always so pleased with them doing well. Um, and so we really want to make them better so that they can reach their goals because they're like, well, we were, when we were young. They, they have goals and they have dreams, but without a platform to really develop themselves, so we're just providing that in those younger ages and uh, and giving them a sense of belonging as well. Brad, you, you mentioned before about um, there being this sort of or noticeable decline in skill sets. You know, is that something that you think just, you know, we've sort of missed the beat a bit with professionals and coming in and the game moving forward that much more that, you know, Australia generally, we've just been a bit slow to kind of react to that? I don't know where I stand on that. I've, when I say the decline in skill sets, that was a perceived uh, mm. notion that one would get by listening to media 
and and watching TV and commentary. Um, I don't know if that really happens, but I think just in a general sense, I think, um, and not just rugby, I think just in a lot of sports, I think a lot of sports would be probably seeing that. Um, and it's probably just, uh, there's varying reasons, social reasons um, uh, and physical reasons. And, and kids, kids today are perhaps not as, they're not going down to the park as much and kicking a football or soccer ball or playing a game of tennis or cricket or whatever than they used to be, say, in the 1970s and 1980s, you know. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It, it's, it's a perceived notion. Um, I don't know where I actually stand on it. Um, in, in saying that, I probably don't really, I don't really have too much fuss about actually identifying it as or labelling it. It's more so just creating a solution to a problem is what we're doing now. And we're sort of saying, well, I don't care what, they, what people think about it. Let's just provide a platform let's, and let's just get all the kids up to speed. You know, so I guess that's my view. Without pointing fingers at anybody or anything like that, you know, that's perhaps what I'm avoiding doing because I don't think that's fair. Um, it's just let's just knuckle down and provide a solution. You know? I think there's always been this general fear that, you know, I'll, you know, we just don't have the talent coming through. Everyone's playing rugby league or AFL. But then, of course, you look at our our junior academies and even the junior wallabies a couple of years ago, and that sort of, you know, is contradicts that argument. Do you guys feel with the kids that you're that are coming through that, you know, we've got actually good talent coming through? Like the the the, the cream is sort of rising to the top at the youth level. Yeah, I, th I think. Um... I think the, the the stream of players coming through uh, is, is still as good as it it always was. Um, more so than in the past, uh, there are other opportunities. AFL was never really uh, a threat to young rugby players coming up, but they are increasingly uh, identifying players out of uh, rugby schools, both in Sydney and. Brisbane in particular. Mm. Uh, league's been a constant, we, we know that. Um, but uh, I think that you're right, that the talent is still coming through. I, I've noticed in the last decade, I think the talent ID is getting a lot better in, in rugby in particular, but be it uh, in Queensland, New South Wales, or, uh, or the ACT in particular, that players have been you know, better identified, probably since Michael Checker became coach, We've become better from the Wallabies on down at working with those players and trying to engage them from an, an earlier age, um, mm. you, you know, in the recognition that the other sports do that very well. Uh, and, of course, Australia's in a really unique situation in the rugby world where just about every other major rugby country doesn't have other winter sports as a real threat, with, with the exception of soccer, but... Fundamentally, it's a different player that plays soccer that, than that mm. which plays uh, rugby, whereas AFL, rugby and rugby league all have a you know tremendous overlap there. Or if you, you did a Venn diagram, there'd be a really big middle section yeah. uh, there of the type of athlete that they, they look for. So we, we, we will always compete against that as in rugby. So we need to get better and smarter. And I think the game is eating towards that. And again, to come back to our program, we hope to be a part of that solution by not only making them better rugby players in their position and somewhat generally, but also ensuring that they 
have a great experience in rugby because a lot of a lot of our kids are also playing league and they're probably mm. playing uh, AFL and other sports at school. So thankfully, they're still getting a bit of a taste. Maybe not as much as our generation did, but they're still getting a taste of the other sports. Uh, we need to make sure that we make their rugby experience the best one possible, so that when the time comes to make a decision, whether it's on a professional pathway or simply what they do post school on a more social and grassroots basis, that rugby is still in the front of their mind as yeah. well. So we we understand that as well as you know trying to improve, help improve the talent ID. And again, we're we're in constant communication with Paul Carrozza, uh, and then. Uh, the likes of Adrian Thompson and even Scott Johnson at times at Rugby Australia about young players coming through and we always make them aware of if, if a kid is new to our program and we think he has a bit of a bit of potential that uh, they're aware of them and, and mm. all that kind of thing, as well as giving them regular updates on uh, various players as well. I guess sort of thinking about the way in which Australia was always labelled a very smart rugby playing nation, we, we used to have really you know, fantastic playmakers that the world envied. And um, I, you know, I still think we do have good, smart players, but it does seem to be one of those things that we had this Australian way of creative backs. Is there still this, do you still think that there is this aspiration amongst the older generation of players to try and, you know, put those smarts into players to, to make them better um, decision makers on the field rather than sort of playing in a, sort of prescriptive way, which can sometimes happen with with the way schools and clubs sort of, you know, drill drill kids? Yeah, well, I guess the answer to that is I'll answer both a yes and a no in a sense that, first of all, I believe the way the game is going is that prescriptive manner. And so, um, you know, you need to be, you need to be, have your position specific skills, you need to be, you know, good on the floor, everyone needs to be good on the floor, accurate breakdown, needs to be a carrier, needs to be effective at tackle efficiencies, needs to be, you know, all those things. Um, the game is becoming more well-rounded, perhaps much more like rugby league is in, in that sense, but not too much, not, not to that extent of rugby league. Um and so that's the answer to just how the game's going with the rules. And, it, and to a degree, it sort of rewards effort and physicality, um, whereas well, the, 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 what you're talking about is something maybe 10 to 20 to 30 years ago where it rewarded talent, fleet of foot um, and smarts. And I think today with, with at the, the game at the highest level with all the video technology and all that sort of stuff um, and the way the defensive lines are, struck, are, are set, you know, you've got to be really smart to be able to do that stuff. And, and, um, and so I think there's a balance there between those both. And so, getting, and, and so the other answer to that is the guys who are our um, sessions really want to impart that knowledge. I think the answer is yes as well. Yeah. You're 100% right. And it's all around exactly, as you said, decision-making, being better players, making better decisions. And and making better decisions is is around having a skill set where you have potentially five choices or eight choices or eight, eight, decisions, eight sort of like possibilities of what you can decide to do. It's not like I can just do one thing. Mm. And, uh, and so having the armory of skills, having the skills in their armory, these kids, and that and de developing things like vision, peripheral vision, counting numbers, 
things like that, having off the offload. Uh, I think, you know, Todd O'Keefe does a wonderful session with the offloads. I get to sneak over. Uh, often at our sessions, we don't, we're in a, we're on a rugby field and we've got a group of ones and threes uh, in one section. Hawkers are in another section. Four, five, six, seven, eight will be in another section. Nines, tens and twelves are together. And then outside backs are together. So as a, I don't often get a chance to see what's going on over there. So if you had a drone, you'd be, you'd be the amount of learnings that would occur in any one day and experience given and knowledge shared would be unbelievable. Um, but getting back to Kev, he does a wonderful thing in the offload. Guys like Nathan Spooner and Pat Howard, both, um, you know, Pat was part of the, the Brumbies initial setup when the Brumbies were, everyone wanted to be what the Brumbies were doing. You'd watch the Brumbies on Saturday and then next week every every other team was trying to emulate the Brumbies. Um, so Pat was a part of that, I guess, with other people that were involved in that other good rugby brains. But the answer is... I think there's a balance between both, and and as a program, we have to provide the both. So it sounds amazing. The the as I said, just I mean, Toto Kef is probably one of my favourite players of all time. So the idea of him sitting there with a group of teenagers, um, listening to him talk about, you know, how he how he sort of used to to manage the ball in contact and you know work as a as a back row is just um i mean it just it just sounds like the stuff of dreams do you just long term you know your sort of vision for this uh is to obviously have it you know continue on but also be one of those things that i guess becomes a real self-sustainable project yeah i think exactly i think primarily it has to be you know has to be uh, perpetuated it has to we have to work out a way that we you know as we get older, some of us, we have to fill in with the younger guys. Uh, the coaches got the coaches. I think the kids will always be there. The parents will always be there. The game will always support us. I think we just got to get our panellists right. And, and as I mentioned to you earlier, um, there's just coaches lining up to be a part of it, um, you know, knowing that we all want the game to do better and we want the kids to get an experience that we had. Um, and so it'll really just be with our capacities moving forward. It would be great if it would, if um, some sponsor was to come on board and just sort of say, well, we, we have a lot of sponsors, don't get me wrong, but some a big sponsor and that was able to sort of say, uh, we will give you, you know, $100,000 and we'll pay some guy who's uh, to run up some, some past player. And that past player might be somebody who's, um, you know, struggling or someone who's recently returned to Australia. Uh, a lot of the players today um, didn't have the experience that we had in the amateur area, amateur pro area. So maybe they didn't have any education behind them or anything like that. So they may be looking for some sort of job to work in rugby and it might be a perfect springboard for them to, to get back home, whether they spent 10 years in Japan or UK or France or whatever. Um, mm. it, it's just a perfect springboard. So that would be the vision for that. Just following on from what Brad said, Scott, you guys obviously would, you know, like to make this thing grow. But um, I interviewed uh, Adam Fryer and, and he, he mentioned about, you know, one of the problems we have in Australia is obviously we can't hold on to all of our best talent. We said a lot of things we can't control there because mm. of the global market, but we, we can control where they end up. And his point was that, you know, there is a lot of things that we can do when players return from overseas in terms of mm. integrating them into the, back into our clubs and, um, you know, do you sort of see that as a sort of a, there's a pattern here in which we could be getting more out of former players in that short period where they've just come back from, you know, international duty or 
the professional area and and it could Absolutely. benefit the clubs yeah look that, that's um become a big part of what we do um in in the sense that a lot of the coaches in our program some stay for a little while some have become long-term parts of the program but we we really captured a lot of those guys that come back and we now we now seek them out i suppose when when we hear that so-and-so is retiring and is back to uh brisbane we we do make a bit of an effort to to get them in because it's really it's been really beneficial for a lot of our guys in that situation. They they just get something to uh, welcome them back home in a really basic sense, reconnect with some of their old playing mates, but also just reconnect with people in the same boat. And, you, you know, often it's just a, a, a conversation about shared experiences in that first six to 12 months mm. post-career because we're, we're really only now seeing... A generation retiring where rugby has been their career to date yeah. whereas as brad touched on uh his generation and those before him had simplicity speaking had day jobs they had plenty of time in their life outside of mm. even the three or four sessions of uh rep rugby uh, training that they do each week so when they retired it was less of a an impact where they, that part of their life moved away, certainly, but they had had plenty to absorb that. Yeah. Whereas when rugby's been your full-time profession for, in some cases, 15 years, uh, you know, the, the, the void is a lot greater. So mm. we, we like to think that we provide uh, a tangible social opportunity for them as much as giving back to the game and all, all these sorts of things. As well, and as I said, sometimes guys come down for a, a couple of sessions, and that serves them well. Mm. Uh, and then some of them hang around, um, and a number of guys have been around for a few years. There's also the category th that have been away from the game for a long time. Nathan Spoon is a great example, uh, and they reconnect through this, and they then take up coaching a bit more than they thought they might have previously. Um, Nathan, like many others I mentioned previously, have has a great natural ability to coach, as do probably, mm. you know, at least 75% of ex-professional players. It's just because they've learned so much. That it just it flows out of them what they learned from those great coaches uh, that I spoke about earlier. So, yeah, I, thought, I think it, it's a twofold thing. I mean, you know, for the kids, it, it's um, the reason for the program. Uh, but one of the nice little byproducts is that we're giving those ex-players somewhere to congregate and reconnect. Mm. Uh, well, well, a real sense of purpose as well. You know, they feel oh, positive because they're they're actually passing on knowledge, and it, you know, it's probably mm. making them also probably almost sort of reflect on their own careers. Uh, yeah, that's right. Look, you know, without drilling too deep, I, I think for any retired athlete, there's a a period where you go, well, was it all worth it? Um, uh, you know, because it, it goes very quickly, it, it disappears very quickly. And, you know, something like this may give them, as you say, that sense of purpose and remind them that, uh, you know, they did some some good things. And probably most importantly, that they continue to do some good things because the kids, uh, you know, we see a lot of kids who benefit greatly from the program and that they start making better teams and, you uh, you know, as they get older, they continue to make 
uh, representative team. Some of our participants are now playing Premier Grade Rugby in Brisbane. Uh, you know, some of them are playing uh, representative football out of school, etc. So, you know, that that's one tangible benefit that the program provides for kids. But we often hear stories about how their confidence has been uh, lifted uh, when they perhaps felt that they, like they were going to struggle to make their A team again mm. at school for whatever reason they did. And, you know, the, the, the parents, uh, I'm a parent myself, and, you know, really what, you, you know, we all want our kids to do well, be it at school or in sport, but you want them to to be happy or feel good about themselves. And I think we mm. we provide that as well. Do you guys, have you sort of noticed any trends or areas where there's a there's more of a greater need for um, skills or, or attention you know specific uh, attention um, to a to a specific position and is that something that you guys talk about and then try to sort of perhaps counter that and make that an additional part of the the, the program yeah, look, absolutely the one that leaps off the page is front rowers mm. um, you, you know it's really hard to find the balance between safety and uh technical development in the front row uh, and for a lot of good reasons uncontested scrums are more prevalent than they had been uh, particularly in schoolboy rugby and we had a uh, a run about three years ago of spinal injuries in Queensland um, but thankfully part of the response to that was we need to make our young players better at mm. that part of the game as well as coming up with some safety measures that um, you know restricted the danger uh, in and around scrums. But thankfully that also aligns with Queensland and Australian rugby in that the scrum has become a really important part of our, our game and we're getting better at it. And certainly the, the Reds are, are now a noted uh, set piece team. Mm. Uh, and then the other position, which is, you know, being uh, a real challenge for uh, the Wallabies all the way through rugby in Australia is 10, mm. where we just don't, uh, we don't produce the same type of 10 that we we're used to. We, I think we're getting back towards that. So, you know, at our program, the front row group is really, really important and it's well led by Murray Harley and has some of the best scrum coaches in Australia uh, in there. Tom Court, uh, Anthony Matheson, Troy Colley, uh, Matt Ryan comes up from Sydney once or twice a year, flies himself up to take part. And then in that uh, decision-maker space, uh, Pat Howard, one of the best coaches of the professional era, um, Nathan Spooner uh, and, you know, a number of other players. Dan Herbert gets involved in in mm. that space as well. It helps tremendously there. So there are areas of focus. We, we, we want to make sure that all of the, all the positions improve, but, to answer your question, you know, and I think most people in Australian rugby from Scott Johnson and Dave Rennie on down would would agree that front row and ten are areas of focus um, for different reasons. I think I think we we need to improve the standard of tens in this country dramatically, uh, and with the front row, we just need to keep improving because you can never be too good in that part of the game. Um, mm. And then other countries are. Uh, New Zealand, South Africa and England in particular are just consistently good in that space and we, we need to get to that uh, that level and that consistency uh, you know in a short amount of time given that we're we're in the middle now of our 
World Cup cycle. Mm. Another area that I know has always been sort of probed by everyone, at, certainly at the, the Wallaby level, is um, our kicking, particularly our goal kicking. Is that a, mm. another area that you guys have sort of looked at or is that a you know a specific we, sort of yeah, skill set? Um, from time to time, the likes of Elton Flatley and, of course, Nathan Spooner mm. uh, have, have worked with our... Uh, our, our goal kickers, you know, in, in and around our sessions, we, uh, you know, have an extra half hour mm. for that. Um, another aspect which we haven't touched on is quite often our coaches give one-on-one coaching outside of the clinics as well. And, and, and that's one area where that, that happens again with uh, Flats and Nathan Spooner and a couple of others um, provide one-on-one coaching again on mm. their own time. Uh, to, to guys as well, but yeah, goal kicking since probably Matthew Burke, certainly since Michael Liner, mm. has been a massive issue in Australia, and um, uh, it, uh, it it probably requires a, a lot more intensive attention than it, it gets now. And what, what we're doing won't be the solution um, because without. Uh, Dragging on, it's um, it's psychological as much as I mean, yeah. most good kickers can kick the ball between the posts, and they'll do it at training ten times in a row. But in the seventy eighth minute uh, of a, a tied game, that's when you need them to be able to do it. And, yeah, um, where you know you take out uh, John Eels in Wellington twenty years ago, almost to the day. Mm. Uh, you know the 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 Strike rate's pretty poor. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like even Reese Hodge last year, it was a, a great kick, but it still didn't go through the sticks. Yeah. yeah and, and you're exactly right. I think it is a, and I suppose that's a whole nother thing that you'd then look at is psycho, psychology for players and, you know, how to sort of, um, uh, you know, deal with that mental pressure. Mate, mm-hmm. I look, couldn't sort of congratulate you or, you know, just, you know, give you guys as much, even more wraps. It just sounds like a fantastic mm-hmm. development. I'm congratulate you guys on driving it. Um, really congratulate all the coaches if they ever if they're listening to this that <laughs> they're doing this because it's such a a great service to to rugby. And uh, I long may it continue, and hopefully this this expands and and just gets better, and then becomes, you know, something that basically is just a, an essential part of our of our rugby system. Because um, obviously, I don't think anyone could argue that there's always there's only going to be benefit from this. Yeah, no, that's right. But look, th- thanks for the opportunity to mm. have a chat about it, and um, look forward to speaking again. Thanks very much. Cheers. I've got some more episodes coming up. Some that are from interviews of old. Others will be a couple of new interviews that I'm trying to line up now. I'm going to try and keep the the content coming. I apologise for the delay. A lot of rugby coming up in the next couple of months. And as I said, a lot more news to come on the film front. So I appreciate your your patience and I hope you're still listening. And uh, get on the Facebook, get on the Instagram, Twitter. Give us a shout out. Let us know what more you might want to hear about or if you want us to comment on, on something that's happening right now and you think's worthy of an episode. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, 
director and host, Matt Durrant. Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com, golddiggerrugby. Follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.